0: Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Steve Hayes. Today I am joined by Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns of the New York Times, who have a new book out, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. You probably have heard about the book. You may have read passages from the book. It's certainly been the subject of a lot of discussion and reporting out of Washington over the past couple of weeks they join me for an hour long conversation on the details of the book and their reporting and what it all means. Jonathan, Alex, thanks for joining us on the dispatch podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I want to focus first on Republicans, then on Democrats, I want to mix in some questions about reporting and writing process, which I, well, I find interesting. I think our, our listeners will find interesting. And then I want to finish with a couple of questions about what it all means. Uh, but I'm going to try to be sort of fast so we can get to as much. My book is totally marked up and dog-eared uh, the way that a good book should be. Uh, I want to cover a lot. Uh, I want to start on January 6th. You report in the book that both Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell believe that Trump's behavior that day was appalling and impeachable. And you also report that in the days after the violence, both Republican leaders believed that there would be enough Republican support to impeach and remove him. This is why McCarthy said he was going to call Trump, tell him to resign, and what McConnell told two aides in a meeting. This section jumped out at me for as much reporting as I had done as many conversations as I'd had about January 6th and about Republicans and and the, the days and weeks after that. it never sort of jumped out at me the way that it did in in your really terrific reporting. Is it fair to conclude that if Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell had led, if they'd acted on their convictions, Donald Trump would have been impeached, convicted, and removed?
1: I think that they certainly would have gotten real close. Uh, You know, one of the things that we report uh, in the book from the Democratic side is that as the. Uh, impeachment trial was unfolding in the Senate. The impeachment managers uh, felt like you know they were going to get a decent chunk of Republican votes. They might get you know in the high fifties, which is obviously where they uh, ended up getting. Um, but that you know basically their hail mary was if we get McConnell, then suddenly a whole bunch of uh, other votes come into play. You know people like your uh, you know your John Thunes and. Uh, uh, you know, your your John Cornyn's, right, people who are by no means uh, sort of moderate Republicans or uh, solid ideological conservatives, Um, but, you know, left to their own devices and given given the kind of cover of McConnell voting uh, to convict, you know, maybe they would be in play. Um, And I think most of our reporting from the Republican side uh, supports that idea that, you know, if McConnell in particular uh, had led in the way he sounded like he was open to leading in the days immediately after January sixth. You know, maybe you still only get a sixty-four, sixty-five votes to convict. Like it's not a sure thing, but you certainly get really, really close to
2: conviction.
0: And 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 you know, there was reporting in, in real time in, in the Times um, that McConnell was, was leaning towards that kind of a vote. What, what happened? Can you just take us through that time period and sort of McConnell's thinking and his conversations and how he ended up being so disgusted with what he had seen and so offended sort of as an institutionalist and yet ended up giving a tough speech about Trump, but not pushing to, to, uh, convict.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think he looked around at his conference and just didn't see an appetite to do this. And then, you know, in that same period, there was this this uh, sort of light preserver that he and other Republicans grabbed onto, which was the constitutional question of whether you could uh, convict somebody who was no longer in office. and then sort of he seized it. Um, you know, th- this is mostly forgotten to history. But Rand Paul brought up a point of order that was effectively a test vote before the final conviction vote on impeachment. And I think it got like five or six, maybe just five Republicans. And we have this this moment right after that in which McConnell tells somebody, look, I didn't get to be Republican leader by voting with five members of my conference. And so I think, you know, it just like McCarthy, there wasn't the will in the conference. And I don't think McConnell was willing to push them. Um, he, he wasn't willing to spend the capital that he would have had to to have found the votes. I think it's possible, and this is a great you know counterfactual for history, I think it's possible that if McConnell really had pushed his conference, he could have found uh, enough Republicans. Um, I think it would have been close. But you just you go through that roster and you find a combination of Republicans who are going to retire in 2022 and those who are sort of traditionalist Republicans who probably aren't going to run again for re-election in 24, 26. And it adds up, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess that that that's sort of where I come down. I mean, it's interesting to me to hear you characterize it and to read, certainly read the, the reporting in the book where it's a vote counting exercise for him. Are the votes there or are they not there? At one time, he seemed to think that, that if they weren't there, they could be there, But it's almost as if it never occurred to him to get the votes there. I mean, Jonathan, just what what you just said there, you know, I didn't I didn't become leader by pushing on votes with five. I mean, in your sense, in your reporting, did it ever occur to him or to Kevin McCarthy in the House to lead people to the conclusion that they thought was warranted by what had happened? Well, (laughs) <laughs> Al, do you want to take that? Sure. I mean,
1: I think we have no indication in our reporting that either of them was really attempted uh, to do that. And even in the days when McConnell is telling people, uh, you know, if this isn't impeachable, then nothing is. The Democrats are going to take care of the son of a bitch for us. Uh, in those days, you know, he's leaving even pretty close lieutenants in the Senate more or less in the dark about what his intentions are. Uh, and that is certainly not the behavior of somebody who is gearing up Uh, To lead, even like a semi-public, you know, within the halls of Congress, a kind of campaign to try to shape opinion, um, rather than to, you know, sort of uh, uh, keep his cards close to his vest and then play them as as events uh, warrant. I, you know, with McCarthy, obviously had fewer levers to work with, just because the House Minority Leader uh, is, you know, comparatively. Um, a powerless and sort of semi-irrelevant figure in our congressional politics. And he showed no particular indication that he was really serious about using the levers that he did have. But, you know, I think one of the really big um, uh, sort of rounds that was never fired here uh, was somebody big on Capitol Hill uh, at the leadership level, you know, not just sort of privately expressing anguish uh, and privately talking through uh, options for punishing Trump, but sort of making the case not not even just to Congress, uh, but to the country, right? That we uh, uh, detail in the book how so many of these Republican leaders uh, sort of took the temperature of their caucus or their conference and and, uh, took the temperature of voters back home and then concluded uh, the will just isn't there. We don't have anybody saying you know the sort of the the sort of uh, uh, old Gene McCarthy line, right? That you know, well, like, I guess I just have to take this to the people. They never get close to doing that,
0: right? I would say, other than Liz Cheney, right? I mean, she sure. she basically makes the case, and and you know, seems to to think at least initially that she might be able to persuade people. I think she's just so outraged by what's happened, by what she's seen, that she can persuade people to come along, um, but it was pretty clear, pretty quick. I mean, it, getting into the Kevin McCarthy calls that, that that was not right. What, you spend some time sort of making, uh, pointing out the differences between the way that Liz Cheney handled the day and the way that Mitch McConnell handled the day and the fact that they were pretty open in their in their disagreement, at least after things went went public. Where was their big difference and how much well, were they coordinating or not? I, mean, coordinating? I think you have to start with, yeah, the coordination was
2: striking. I mean, I think Cheney and McConnell, and this is not reported that widely, we're talking quite a bit, uh, leading up to and then on and after January 6th, they were uh, they were close allies. In fact, McConnell issues a statement in February of 21, a paper statement, sort of praising Liz Cheney as an important leader uh, in the party when when she's, you know, is starting to be targeted uh, by the sort of Trump forces. Um And they were sort of like, I think, talking quite a bit. And then as we get into the spring, I think is where the relationship breaks down. Because, you know, Liz Cheney will not stop talking about Trump and the threat that Trump posed and poses to the country in her mind. And McConnell at this point just is straight uh, uh, political assessment. Talking about Trump still does not help us take back the majority in 22, period, end of sentence. And I think... Uh, as Cheney tells us uh, for the book that they just had a difference of opinion at that point about what Trump represented. Cheney believes that you have sort of keep talking about the threat he poses, and McConnell believes uh, that you know, Trump is going to basically lose altitude to borrow one of his favorite phrases uh, over a period of time, and there's there's sort of no use in sort of continuing to give him oxygen by by uh, confronting him and that 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 is the root of their breakdown Steve
0: and it looks like McConnell may get sort of half of what he wants right he he may well end up senate majority leader certainly doesn't look at this point like Trump is fading away uh, in the way that McConnell uh calculated or or miscalculated Uh, look the the entire book you have this sort of in the room feel and I would say a a level of sort of authority that that lots of the other books um, in this genre don't, don't quite get. Um, I'd say nowhere is that more true than, than the reporting on the events of, of January 6th. How did you all go about reporting that day?
1: Well, I I mean, I'll, I'll uh, leave that mainly to Jonathan because he had the you know, misfortune as a human being, but a great fortune as a reporter of actually being in the complex during uh, the insurrection, um, and I think that was clearly an invaluable uh, uh, element of of what we were able to gather. Um, look, I think we cast a really wide net in who we spoke to about the experience of that day. Um, we spoke uh, not just to leadership in both parties, but to the rank and file, uh, to different factions of the rank and file uh, in both parties, and you know, I think we felt going into our account of Ah, uh, the insurrection, and the hours before and after the insurrection, that the bar was going to be pretty high for us to tell readers something that they didn't uh, already know. that if what we ended up supplying was, you know, the tale of Pence being evacuated from uh, the Senate floor, uh, the heroism of uh, the highest profile members of the Capitol Police, that that was going to be really, really familiar to readers, uh, and that if we were going to bring them something different and eye-opening, we needed to make the uh, both the political attention of the day much more vivid, and also needed to uh, animate the experience of individual members of Congress who truly felt, and uh, uh, and with good reason, uh, that their lives were in danger. Um, and so I think that's sort of broadly how we went about reporting it. But Jonathan should speak to his own firsthand uh, uh, experience of the day.
2: Yeah, I think two things, Steve. I think one, being there. I think it's a great lesson for, for journalists that, you know, uh, if you're not sure whether or not to go, like usually the right answer is to go. Uh, and like, I don't just mean politics. I mean like uh, a lot of different uh, beats. Um, uh, and I think just being there, obviously, on the sixth itself um, was important for the book, but also because of COVID shutting down our bureau and because of uh, uh, other external <laughs> external factors, like. I just spent a lot of time in the Capitol before and after January sixth. Uh, I think just being around there and talking to members uh, in those in those days was was helpful for um, for reporting the book. And the other point that I would make is, um, you know Robert Carroll has this line of turn every page when you're doing research. Uh, I, I think what our version of that would be like contact almost every office. Um, And by that, I mean, you know, Alex said casting a wide net like he's not he's not bragging like as the old satchel page page line goes. It ain't bragging if you've done it. Um, Look, we reached out to a lot of different people at all levels of government in Washington and beyond. And a lot of people who, frankly, just don't talk to the press that much, in part because they aren't contacted by the press or because they don't really trust the press. And we were able to sort of leverage uh, those sources uh, to get a fuller, richer picture of what we think is a really consequential period in American history.
0: So one of the ways in which you provided that fuller, richer picture was by obtaining audio tapes. Um, You got your hands on tapes of Kevin McCarthy telling colleagues on a phone call that he was prepared to go ask Donald Trump to resign. So you first report this. And he denied that he'd done what you claimed he'd done. Took a shot at the New York Times, fake news, the whole thing. And then a short time later, after he kind of hung himself with his his false denial, you released the tapes, removing any doubt that he'd said exactly what you had reported he'd said. So he lies. He He gets caught in a lie, and it's a bad, ugly lie. When people asked him about it and asked his allies in the House Republican Conference about it, They claimed the tapes were deceptively edited and that you'd taken him out of context. Is that true? Uh, No, (laughs) it's not. Um,
1: Look, I think what our initial story about his comments said and what the book says uh, is that he was uh, anguished and tortured on this call, that they talked about a number of options for punishing Trump or removing him from office, including censure, including invoking the 25th Amendment. Uh, And that at one point McCarthy outlined the closest thing he ever had to a plan, which was to say, I'm going to, I think I'm going to call up Trump uh, and tell him he should resign. uh, And I don't expect him to take that suggestion. that's what we reported. That's what McCarthy uh, denied. And he specifically denied that he ever said that he was going to uh, call Trump uh, and tell him to resign. So we released the audio demonstrating uh, that that, that his denial was bogus. Um, It's not out of context. Uh, the context of the article, the the context of the book uh, is totally faithful uh, to his comments. Um, you know, I think that uh, uh, he made the unfortunate mistake of issuing a categorical denial uh, of something that he quite literally said. Uh, and I think that, you know, I mean, it speaks to his character, it speaks to his political judgment. Uh, you know, I think that there probably were Republicans who might have been prepared to uh, forgive him or look past Uh, his actual comments if he had been honest up front and said, listen, we talked about a bunch of different options on that call, including resignation, but I never actually called uh, President Trump uh, and and told him to resign, which as far as we can determine uh, is totally true. But he decided instead uh, to lie (laughs) lie and attack uh, the Times and the media uh, and us as reporters, and that was obviously a mistake on his part.
0: Uh, At at the House Republican Conference a a few days later, McCarthy, uh, by several accounts received a standing ovation from at least some of the the GOP caucus. Do you know what they were applauding exactly? And have you talked to people who were in the room about what, what the sense was in that moment?
2: Look, I think, um, there was a rallying effect, uh, around Kevin McCarthy, um, not because of the substance of what we wrote um, or because of the lie he told afterwards, but because for a good number, Steve, of those House Republicans, uh, it's the media writing a tough story about their leader. And like, that's what they care about. It's, it's they're taking the side of him against the media uh, broadly. And I think uh, you have to recognize that's where a lot of folks in the party are. And we get that. I will just say though, I think like the short-term relief he gets uh, should not uh, mask the longer-term damage here. I think it's his credibility has has obviously uh, taken a blow. And I think everybody in in, in Congress uh, who covers Congress recognizes that. And also Kevin McCarthy is only as strong as Donald Trump lets him be. Uh, If Donald Trump decides for whatever reason that, he doesn't trust McCarthy anymore, or he's had enough McCarthy, that's going to create enormous problems for Kevin McCarthy. I mean, McCarthy wakes up every day, not really controlling his own political fate, Steve.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly consistent with the conversations I've had since then. I've talked to several Republicans who say, including some close allies of McCarthy, who say this, uh, the standing ovation or partial standing ovation masks this growing frustration with McCarthy in... The conference, uh, one one person who's not a, a prominent critic of of Kevin McCarthy, said that he was really tired from having to defend McCarthy, sort of again and again and again. And you do get the sense that that's while they're all sort of clasping hands, Trump comes out and gets McCarthy's back. They're all they're all rallying to him. That there may well be some long term uh, fallout from this that's not evident uh, right now, uh, particularly as they try to. To beat up Joe Biden and, and go to the win the election. Um, so big picture question on, on the Republicans in, in this moment for you. I mean, and, and Jonathan, certainly you and I have, have talked about this a, a lot over the, the years. I've been telling people that Republican and conservative views about this period would change once the kind of definitive histories have been written and it becomes clearer that what elective Republicans and conservative media figures were saying when they were praising Trump in public and they were doing something close to the opposite in private, which you know we, we uh, know and to the extent that we can tell people, we try to tell people. But I would say that this is sort of that first cut at the definitive history. And you had Kevin McCarthy on tape. Do you think that that we're at a point where polarization is just more powerful than the truth. And if that's true, does it last beyond this moment?
1: Well, I think we're clearly in a moment when polarization matters more than just about uh, anything else. And I think that it does. It is It is the major reason why uh, someone like McCarthy is uh, shielded from the short-term consequences of lying the way his predecessors uh, probably would not have been. It's taken such a cultural toll uh, on us as a as a people, as a political system. this The sort of notion uh, that a, a leader would uh, just sort of uh, have any sense of honor about lying and being caught in a lie is obviously a long gone in most parts of uh, our political system. I do think that there is reason to believe, as Jonathan was saying before, that uh, this stuff does sort of carry a price over time. Um, And that being seen as a a fundamentally dishonest person, um, you know, the bill for that ultimately does uh, come due sooner or later. That most of these people who are uh, lying to their voters or to their uh, colleagues or to themselves about what they really think about Donald Trump um, only get away with that because they're also under the protective umbrella uh, of Donald Trump right? That uh, the, the the lie only lasts as long uh, as Trump allows it to last. And in a world where Trump uh, decides, I'm not saying I think this is likely, but a world where he decides, actually, I'm kind of done with politics, I'm going to spend more time uh, with my money and my golf courses, or, you know, Trump is mortal, just like the rest of us. And there will be a time when he is no longer uh, the leader of the Republican Party for actuarial reasons. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that culture of just sort of brazen dishonesty, Uh, persists because you don't have sort of this giant 8,000 pound political gorilla protecting you from uh, any consequences on your own side.
0: Yeah, boy, that's, I mean, I'd say that's an optimistic (laughs) view. I, I wish I shared it more, um, more enthusiastically. I worry that we've gotten to the point where that because there has been such a long period of, I mean, long in relative terms of a lack of punishment for this kind of aggressive, Dishonest. Some in some cases, aggressive dishonesty. In some cases, casual dishonesty about sort of anything and everything. Things of the greatest importance and things that matter not at all. That it's hard to get back to the to to that that earlier. I mean, not that politics has has been a uh, you know a forum for honesty for, for the, the, the <laughs> heights of honesty over the years. I just feel like it's we've sort of reached new lows.
2: dollars or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch.
0: Let me, uh, speaking of honesty let me turn to Democrats. A lot of the reporting out of your book has has focused on what you uncovered about the, the Republicans and the way that you wrote about Trump and January 6th and the, and the election and the aftermath, uh, Kevin McCarthy and the tapes. But there's some really interesting in the room reporting on Democrats too and on, on Joe Biden, on his campaign, on uh, the early days of his presidency. Um, and, and I want to spend a few minutes focused on that here. One of the things that that was really interesting and and I'm almost embarrassed to admit that I hadn't really thought of the framing before I I read it the way that you guys um, put it was Trump sort of being open and unapologetic about the fact that he was dividing the country sort of said I'm going to be president for this chunk of the country and for the rest of you you know go to hell in effect. really open in his 2016 camp about it, campaign about it, really open as a president about it, uh, has been open ever since about it. Joe Biden, of course, ran the opposite kind of campaign, said he was going to bring the country back together. This is particularly in the early days of the Democratic primary, going to bring the country back together. He was a uniter in his, in his inaugural. He said unity is in his soul. And he hasn't done that at all. And I would say one of the things that, that the reporting brings out is the extent to which that was deliberate. He made political calculations that he knew would continue to divide the country. And I guess I'm struck by, you know, as much as I'm critical of Donald Trump for this deliberate division kind of as a as a governing philosophy and a political approach, I'm equally offended by Joe Biden, who says he's going to unite the country and really doesn't do much ever to pretend that he does. I'm I'm wondering did, did other people sort of come to the same conclusion? Biden advisors, are they aware that this is the effect that he's had and that that too will will really make it hard for people to, to come together?
2: Well, I think the whole Biden White House from the president on down got carried away in the spring of 2021 with the possibility that he could be uh, an enormously consequential president. And they saw the sort of end of COVID, the potentially the end of Trump. And wow, we have this majority we never thought we'd have, thanks to Georgia. We can really go big. And I think it gets to the heart of the sort of tension that Biden brings to the office, which is this, this sort of uh, duality of a, wanting to be a unifying, healing president. His empathy gene is probably his best asset. Somebody that's going to sort of uh, bring the country uh, back after our own long national nightmare. And also, he's a career of, you know, half century politician who's always wanted this job and he wants to do big consequential things. And by the way, he wouldn't mind being a bigger figure on policy than Barack Obama, uh, who is somebody who he has this rivalry with that we, that we capture in the book. And he's never totally gotten over the treatment that he, Biden, got as vice president from the Obama White House. So I think all of that is, is sort of wrapped up, Steve, in, in where Biden winds up in the spring and summer of 2021. Really sort of putting aside the the imperative for, for, for unity and for healing and instead uh, really going sort of pedal to the metal with, trying to create this big legacy, a big legacy, by the way, that may be his only one, because he, obviously he's the oldest president in American history and somebody who may just serve one term. So that's also, I think, in the back of their minds, too. Of If we want to go big, we have to do it now and to get as much done as we can this year and next year before the midterms.
0: So I want to I want to get to the, the spring and summer of 2021 um, and the things that he did then, looking back to the campaign, you you all write about um, Biden taking this sort of big message of of unity, returning the country to normal, sort of a caretaker, uh, making people feel comfortable with with him as a post-Trump remedy, Um, but then get to the point where he's effectively secured the nomination, and then rather than do what... Uh, candidates from both political parties have done for years, which is tacked to the middle, he goes about consolidating the left of the Democratic Party. I'd be interested in just getting your sense of how that happened or what compelled him to do that, and whether that leads us to the kind of governing that we saw in the early years of the Biden presidency.
1: It's a really good question. I think the answer is it certainly does lead us. Uh, I think you draw a straight line from uh, Biden's behavior in the months after he effectively secured the nomination to uh, the kind of hubris in twenty twenty one that Jonathan was just talking about. And uh, Steve, I think that like so many other uh, episodes in Biden's career, the boundary lines between uh, the evolution of his personal beliefs and the evolution of uh, the sort of immediate Uh, tactical political imperatives uh, that he feels that there's a really, really blurry uh, boundary line between those things. So, you know, look, he becomes the nominee and for all the sort of, uh, you know, Uh, End zone dancing on the part of his advisors and the sort of uh, rubbing it in the faces of the press corps that you underestimated uh, us all along. I think there is a recognition in more honest moments that, boy, did they catch some big breaks on the way to the nomination. That if Michael Bloomberg hadn't imploded the way he did, uh, you know, uh, at the hands of Elizabeth Warren, uh, if Bernie Sanders hadn't uh, run way to the left and gotten bogged down in uh, South Carolina, just as he seemed to be, you know, engaging a debate about Fidel Castro, uh, just at the moment that he seemed to be pulling ahead, that maybe Biden doesn't uh, uh, sort of lock up the nomination uh, at exactly the right moment as COVID uh, is striking. And I think there's a recognition on the part of Biden, his advisors, that, you know, there's not a great enthusiasm for him on the part of much of the Democratic coalition, that he's got to do something to make sure that particularly young people uh, and white liberals Uh, and the the sort of larger activist wing of the party does feel invested in him uh, in the fall. And they do that in some pretty unsubtle ways uh, by tacking left on policy. But at the same time, this is also a moment where COVID has struck the country, when Congress is rushing out massive amounts of emergency spending uh, to uh, prop up the economy and aid the American people. And there is, you know, it's, it's very far, it already feels like the very distant past, although it's uh, two years ago, there was this extended moment in the spring of 2020, uh, where folks on the left, and even folks in the in, you know, closer to the political center felt like this is going to change people's relationship to government, uh, you know, now and forever. Uh, And that's where the sort of FDR fantasy really starts to open up for Biden, right? That this is an invitation to redraw the way our country works, basically from top to bottom. And for a combination of ideological and tactical reasons, Joe Biden finds that pretty tempting.
0: Yeah. And I I think, you know, that's a really interesting answer. I think sometimes there's a there's a tendency, and I'm I'm criticizing myself for doing this here, to want to impose on that recent history, um, a kind of simplicity that just doesn't exist. I mean, and I think this comes out in the book. You can see Biden going back and forth a little bit. I mean, it seems like sometimes he really does want to return the country to what he sees as normal sometimes he does want to unify the country and then at other times you know he he just gets carried away by the moment or he listens to advisors who are saying you can be the big you can be the big transformational president
2: no, and Steve, I, this was too late for us to get into the book, but there's a great uh, uh, example of that. In a period of 24 hours earlier this year, Biden goes to Atlanta, delivers a blistering speech on voting rights, and basically tells Republican lawmakers, do you want to be Bull Connor or John Lewis? And you know the response he gets from Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, is sort of outrage. Uh, and the next day, Biden's in the U.S. Capitol and goes to McConnell's office to try to basically patch things up with McConnell. I mean, that's the two Joe Bidens right there on display in a period of 24 hours. And it's also why Democrats are so frustrated with Biden, because they know he's not able to drive a consistent message. Obviously, he's trying to do so now. He's talking more about MAGA Republicans and targeting Rick Scott, but it's always this question of consistency and Biden's willingness to stay on message, and he's never been able to do that. So a real fast plug: we have this section at the end of the book in which Paul Begala, the the, the famed Clinton strategist, goes to Ron Klain and presents Klain with like a classic Clinton line, uh, which was Alex can correct me if I'm wrong here, but. The Republicans are more scared of Donald Trump than they care about you or something like that. Right. You can just hear Bill Clinton saying it, you know, um, and Klain is pretty blunt with Pagala. who he's known for years. It's like, you know, Biden, that's just not Biden's thing, Paul. That's just not that's just not who Biden is. Right. And like the idea of like Joe Biden out there every day laying the wood to Republicans going into the midterms, it's just hard to see, you know.
0: And yet, that's what we have seen from him in the last couple of days. He gives this speech about you know, trying to blame Rick Scott for 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 wanting to raise taxes and and Republicans for inflation, and uh, it just it it feels like it's not going to hit. And it it's also very difficult to reconcile. I think for people who aren't paying attention to every twist and turn of of politics every single day, people who are out sort of leading their lives. It it is totally inconsistent with the way that they remember him, or many of them remember him running for president. He was going to run as the unity guy. Uh, let me let me follow up on that that one uh, point you made. You know, there there is this conventional wisdom. I think it's it's supported by a fair amount of reporting that. You know, Biden continues to be pulled left by his by the advisors in the White House, by Ron Klein and others, and and you know the 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 super woke young staff at the White House has sort of outsized influence, um, and, and that's helped really drive the direction of the Biden presidency to the left. I think there's truth to that, certainly. Um, but but I also wonder just how much is Biden being sort of directionless? He's another one who doesn't seem to me, if you, based on, on the account in your book and, and everything I've observed over the past couple of years, he's not really leading. He's just sort of being, you know, f- floating along in the, in the stream of the river. Um, how much of it is Biden not sort of grasping the, the reins of leadership and how much is it uh, his staff pulling him left? How, how should we understand that?
1: So I think there's two there's two uh, things that I'd note there. One is, you know, people in the administration will say this, certainly people on the Hill will say this, is that Biden is still acting like a senator, uh, that he's not, he doesn't see himself uh, as being in a position to command uh, a certain policy direction from his uh, friends and former colleagues uh, in Congress, that he's sort of uh, governing by trying to take the measure of where the Democratic coalition is and chart a path. Uh, roughly through the middle of it, but that of course makes him super vulnerable to the whims of, you know, people on the far left and people uh, who are much much closer to the political center within his own party who don't uh, necessarily uh, have consistent views themselves on some of these issues. Uh, so I think that's sort of challenge number one, it's just a temperamental uh, challenge, a challenge related to Biden's basic orientation. I think the reality of the staff uh, issue is definitely true. We go into uh, some depth in the book about sort of divisions within uh, the Biden palace guard uh, ideologically, but I think that ultimately you have to lay this uh, on Biden himself, right? That it, you know, plenty of uh, presidents uh, have a set of, I think every president has advisors who are uh, more ideological advisors who are uh, more pragmatic, but that ultimately it's down to the president to uh, set the agenda and set the direction of the administration. And one of the things that we, uh, I think, capture pretty uh, clearly is in the summer of 21, uh, Biden meeting with different groups uh, from Capitol Hill and trying on the one hand to assure you know the Joe Manchins of the world, uh, and really there's only one Joe Manchin of the world trying to uh, reassure Joe Manchin, you know, I hear you, I'm not going to make you take votes that cut against your conscience. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, meeting with uh, folks from the Congressional Progressive Caucus and telling them, you know, thank you for standing up for my entire agenda, right, and uh, giving uh, Pramila Jayapal a copy of his speech to Congress where he uh, outlines the full sweeping FDR scale domestic agenda uh, that he wanted to enact. And it's not that I think necessarily in that moment uh, Biden's being uh, dishonest with Uh, Manchin and then later uh, being uh, dishonest with Jayapal or or vice versa, uh, is that I think he wants to do it all, right? He wants to be uh, Joe Manchin's friend. He wants to be FDR. Uh, He wants to get along with uh, Rob Portman and uh, do deals with Mitch McConnell. He wants to do it all at the same time and obviously has found that when you're trying to do it all, uh, sometimes the result is that you don't get to do very much.
0: I thought that the Jaipal moment was very interesting. She's the the re- representative who's the leader of the Progressive Caucus in in the House, and you have this the, the, a couple of sort of scenes back to back where you have Kirsten Sinema, the senator from Arizona, who's been uh, sort of. A difficult person for Biden, um, certainly not going along with his agenda. And you have Jai who could be a difficult person for Biden, but whom he seems more determined to appeal to and sort of handhold. And and that that struck me not just in that moment, but throughout the the parts of the book that are about Joe Biden. Is he does seem much more attuned to the 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 needs and and interests of progressives as opposed to the centrists, that many people thought he was years ago. Am I wrong to read it that way? I I don't think, I mean, look, I mean, Mitch
2: McConnell has very strong feelings on this. He he says, I I served with moderate Democrats. Joe Biden was never one of them. I, I, I think Biden is hard to anchor in any wing of the party. If you look at his career, he's kind of been wherever he thought the party's center was. Uh, you know, he was a Kennedy man early on, uh, and then obviously when sort of DLC rose in the early 90s, I think he was plenty comfortable with that crowd. Obviously, he wrote the crime bill when Bill Clinton was president. So I, I, just, I just am not comfortable sort of putting Biden in any one ideological sort of fixed place. I do think you're right that he wants to be seen as... Uh, If you will, hip to the kids. Uh, One of the the biggest Joe Biden lines is you know, when climate change comes up, he loves to say, I wrote the first climate bill ever in Congress uh, because he just still has to prove his credentials with the current crowd. Uh, And, you know, Pramila Jayapal is on MSNBC and he calls her afterwards to give her a shout out because he wants to sort of be in that world. But at the same time, like, He's happy to talk about like John Eastland and like Lister Hill and like cutting deals with these old segs. Um, and, and like you know, to make the point that he can do business with Mitch McConnell and to lament that like the polarized capital today, um, like w- is worse than it was when they had actual segregationists there who at least you could do deals with and like have some bean soup with in the Senate dining room. And these days they don't even talk to each other, so it's like it just, Steve, it's just a different. Biden for a different day, depending upon, you know, what audience he wants to kind of ingratiate in the moment.
0: You, you mentioned uh, his dealings with old SAGs. Um, you raised Biden's age at several points in your reporting in what I would describe as a relatively gentle and, and respectful manner. Um, but it's a big deal. You don't have to be a, sort of a partisan or somebody interested in cheap shots like Sean Hannity. To be worried about it, Biden, when he gives these, these speeches, he often has interjections that literally don't make sense. When he's speaking extemporaneously, he routinely wanders down these verbal cul-de-sacs and seems not to know how he got there and, and where he's going. How much of a concern is that? Uh, for the Biden advisors and Democrats in Congress that that you spoke to for the book?
1: Oh, I think it's a massive concern. Um, and I think you, know, you alluded to the sort of Sean Hannity version of the age issue. And I think that's the only, uh, frankly, the Hannity uh, style uh, discourse on Biden's age is the only reason why it's not a more open uh, subject of conversation in the Democratic Party, that there is this feeling that if you engage the uh, subject of the president's uh, advanced age and you know, his obvious, I mean, obvious signs that he has sort of just slowed down um, uh, in his public performance, um, that suddenly you're veering into this sort of like deranged conspiracy theory world where like Biden's a marionette on strings pulled by whoever, right? Um, but no, Democrats talk uh, constantly <laughs> about this uh, in private. Uh, and I think they're going to talk more and more uh, openly about it as we approach the midterms uh, and get past the midterms. You know, I think that one of the things that um, is challenging in sort of depicting this in the book is that, you know, we have no indication that Biden uh, is experiencing a cognitive decline, right? We don't have scenes in our reporting uh, where people are talking to him about the infrastructure bill and, you know, he thinks they're talking about like the Voting Rights Act of 1965 or something, right? Like That's not uh, the sort of category of stuff that we're talking about. But yeah, the slower to come up with Uh, a name, slower to come up with specifics, uh, the verbal cul-de-sacs that you're talking about. And Steve, I think one of the biggest tells that we do get into in the book is the real lack of of travel and vigor in his salesmanship, that one of the only ways that Biden would ever criticize uh, the Obama administration was talking about how the salesmanship was weak. We had great policies. uh, We just didn't sell them to the country. At least that's his version of it. Uh, And he said during the primaries in 20, I'm not going to let that happen again. And he has very, very much uh, let that happen again. I think when we were reporting this book, we thought that after the uh, American Rescue Plan passed, we would see Biden spend uh, most of calendar uh, year 2021 reopening schools and uh, going to groundbreakings and uh, police stations and firehouses that were funded by the law. And instead, he's uh, barely been west of the Mississippi as president. That's obviously related to his age.
0: Yeah, and 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 it's certainly. I mean, if if I'm talking to to Democrats who speak rather openly, I mean, they don't want to be quoted, but they're they're willing to talk about their concerns about this. I can imagine that that. Both of you, who are much better sourced among Democrats than I am, uh, hear this quite a bit. I mean, and 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 Alex, we did hear just the other day an example of the kind of real miss that that you're talking about that that doesn't feature much in the book. I mean, you know, he was asked about Title Forty Two, and he went off, and I believe he started talking about COVID and and masks, and I mean, it was just a. they were two things that didn't connect at all. And I think we've seen more and more of that in such a way that I would expect this does become a pretty big issue as as uh, as we go move forward toward um, 2024. You know, the other thing I'll say
1: about that is I think he, it's a place where he is not well served uh, by the uh, instinct of his staff to clean up uh, the sort of uh, honest but inconvenient stuff that he blurts out. By then turning on the fog machine and saying, well, actually, the president wasn't saying what he was obviously saying uh, about regime change in Russia. He was saying this other thing that, like, if you look at his literal words would make absolutely no sense. Right. So they sort of feed this impression that he's constantly uh, uh, disoriented and and not uh, talking straight, uh, even in times when he is talking extremely straight and just saying stuff that his staff wishes he wouldn't say.
0: Yeah. Let me ask one more question about the Biden administration um, and then move to a couple big picture questions to close. You guys really detailed um, sort of the best uh, history that I've read of the, the vice presidential search, the the running mate search for, for Biden. One of the things that really jumps out is the extent to which Kamala Harris was willing to savage the competition, um, employing sort of third party cutouts, potentially, and, and and the extent to which those on the receiving end of the criticism and the oppo leaks were well aware that it was Kamala Harris. She seems to have been willing to do just about anything to take the position, despite the fact that there were some reservations from people very close to Joe Biden to give it to her. Um, given everything that's happened since. Do you think that the the people who had those reservations about Kamala Harris as vice president feel vindicated, validated in some way?
2: Oh, privately, they definitely do. Now, I think that's the broader democratic orbit, Steve. I think within the Biden White House, it'd be harder to, to find somebody that would straightforward say, you know, that this was a mistake. Um, but certainly among the sort of broader universe of sort of democratic insiders and officials, yeah, you, you sort of definitely get that sense of this was, you know, this is not going well. Um, I think it's a little bit more complicated within the white house itself. I think, um, uh, I think they, they have their frustration with the vice president, uh, but th- th- there's not a contempt for her. It's more just a frustration with her. And you know what, you know, why is there this sort of constant churn with her staff? Obviously it's happened to her, her whole career, you know, maybe she's the problem. Um, but I think, uh, um, that choice was made in sort of the short term um, because everything Biden was doing in that period was with one goal in mind, which is how we beat Donald Trump. There was not some thought out plan for, oh, what's her portfolio going to be? And hey, Biden's going to be 80 years old. Can he run for reelection? Is she become the de facto nominee for us in 24? I don't think any of that was on their mind. It was more just what makes the most sense for this moment.
0: What's safe? Right, I mean, yes, they wanted safety. It was the
2: safest pick. It was the it was the sort of I think as one person told us, it was the it was the least worst option.
0: So, so big picture question about the reporting, you know, and I, I know you've been asked this uh, before, but when you're doing a book like this and you work for the the New York Times, obviously there's this imperative to get the news out, but you held obviously quite a bit of news. I mean, the the, the tapes themselves are are sort of extraordinary. A, n- a number of t- different tapes and a number of different or recordings in a number of different scenarios. Um, first, did you, h- how do you do that? I mean, do you feel sort of compelled to keep it, to make sure that the book does well and that there's a lot of good stuff for the book? And and how do you, as as people who are used to breaking news, avoid putting that out right when you get it?
1: Well, in some cases, and I, I think we're not going to do sort of a, like a case-by-case case, uh, uh, answer on this one, but in some cases, you know, you're know, you forbidden by source agreements from putting the information out in real time. And I think one of the things uh, that any book author, I think including present company, would, uh, would confirm is that people are going to be a lot more candid with you with their on-the-record comments, with their uh, recollections, and with primary source materials. Uh, if they think it's not going to appear in the paper tomorrow, Uh, or on Twitter in uh, 45 seconds, right? Um, And so, you know, that was certainly a limiting factor uh, in a lot of what we did. That doesn't mean it's necessarily easy for us on a sort of temperamental and constitutional level, right? That this is the first book for both of us. And, you know, all our training is to, yeah, get it out uh, like right now. Um, and it, there's something- I've been
0: I've been with with Jonathan when he's had a scoop and he was we were on a plane. I think I've told this story before. Maybe the last time you were on it. we were on a plane. He had a scoop. And this was before you could get on Wi-Fi on planes. And he couldn't do it. And physically shaking. like one of those uh, creative sentencing things, right? It was so, I mean, it was, I felt bad. I honestly felt bad for you, but it was highly amusing uh, as someone who didn't have a scoop.
1: But so like, it's challenging, but it's also in a different way, kind of liberating, right? If if you're told like, you cannot use this right now, right? You have to save this and make it count uh, in a different way. Um, well, like, you know, you have to go through the process of accepting uh, those constraints and just dealing with the sort of emotional uh, challenges associated with that. But at the end of the day, it does uh, empower you to tell a bigger kind of story.
2: Hayes, imagine being on that plane for sixteen months with me <laughs> and sitting on—I can't—I on, can't. I couldn't sitting couldn't on like uh, dynamite material, but unable to talk about it with anybody, uh, I uh, can't and even hoping imagine. that it
0: holds. Alex, like, I'm so sorry. Four hundred
2: fifty pages worth. <laughs>
0: I'm so sorry you had, you had to do this. The, I mean, it is interesting. Do you guys ever have the, the sense, I mean, this happened to me when I was particularly when I was, uh, researching reporting and, and writing, uh, I did a biography about Dick Cheney was writing the Cheney book and, and you'd be in the middle of interviewing somebody and you could see, you could actually physically see them sort of switch into, I am talking for history mode. Did you, did you come across that? Oh, absolutely. And and it's a sort of surreal thing
1: uh, when, you know, it's not like we're doing a uh, an interview project uh, that's embargoed until like 2035 or something. This isn't a time capsule. It's material that's going to come out uh, in 16 months or so. But that separation and also I just think the format of the book in the sense that you're speaking for something more durable uh, that's going to be consumed on library shelves, hopefully for a long time, uh, and not just by you know, sort of, especially enterprising grad students who are going to uh, look over these articles in microfiche. Uh, I do think people feel a certain, uh, you know, uh, a liberty uh, to speak, and also a certain responsibility to speak.
0: Yeah. So, you when you when you describe Donald Trump, you do this at the beginning um, in the introduction, then you do it throughout throughout the book. You you depict him as an authoritarian demagogue who presents a threat to the republic. In fact, there are several points in in the book. In which you basically say that, or I mean, that's almost a direct quote. Half of the country voted for the guy. He seems likely, maybe, to be the Republican nominee again in two years if he runs. Most Republicans still view him favorably, and they buy his claims that the 2020 election was stolen. When you're writing something like that, I can hear some of my conservative friends reading this and saying, ah, that's just their opinion. These guys, New York Times, left wing bias that, you know, they're injecting their opinion about Donald Trump. How did you come to describe him that way? And was there ever a moment where you said, man, maybe we shouldn't describe him in that kind of aggressive language because we want more people to read it?
2: no I think that that's never been a challenge for us I think that we we understand the material uh, and know who he is and I think we're, we're you have to be honest with your readers I think one of the frustrations that I think all of us can have with the conventions of journalism and writing is um this sort of uh tendency toward toward euphemism or sort of backing into things or how do we present things in a way that doesn't really capture the heart of the matter and we just we were so thrilled about this project because on so many levels, not just Trump, we could sort of put in the print a conversation that we've been having, Alex and I have had for years about a, a number of people and of um, of sort of uh, facts of American political life. And um, Steve, I, I know you experienced this. The fact is, we know who Donald Trump is a lot better than most American voters, because we have talked to him, we've talked to his advisors, we know what he was doing and saying as president, and the facts bear out our description. They they just do, you know.
1: The the other thing I would just tack on to that is, uh, you know, authoritarian uh, demagogues and and extreme figures uh, across the political spectrum win elections all the time, uh, all over the world. Um, And I think we're very conscious of the fact that uh, almost half the country voted for Donald Trump Uh, twice, but that doesn't sort of uh, absolve us of the responsibility to speak plainly about uh, who he is. And that I think one of the real tensions in political reporting in this time has been trying to reckon with what Trump is uh, and also the very real appeal that he holds over people and that he, you know, the the, the political force that he represents, that it's not all just a matter of uh, people being uh, sort of tricked by the Russians on Facebook or like fed disinformation on Twitter. And they've been sort of duped into voting for the guy uh, that extreme leaders have considerable appeal on the right and on the left uh, in elections all over the world. And I think one of the things that has been challenging for us and for American readers is to is to recognize that uh, that's just as true here uh, as it is in a
0: place like Brazil uh, or Italy or the Philippines. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the stuff that he's done over the past couple of years, I mean, sought help from American enemies to win an election. He has extorted, attempted to extort American allies. He tried to run a black man in 2020 to siphon off black votes. He embraced insane conspiracy theories. He amplified the nuts who came up with them. His campaign tried after the fact to intimidate poll workers. He called the secretary of state and basically asked him to cheat. I mean, this is banana republic stuff. It's crazy, crazy stuff. And I I think, I mean, one of the things. And there's so much of it. And it's so so much. It's it's overwhelms
2: the circle gets that the, the sheer totality of it all desensitizes people to the individual acts. Yes. And that has been, I think, the sort of I hate to say the secret of his success, but I think it, it is. captures a lot of why he has not paid a political price or yes. more of a price than most conventional political actors would have if taken in isolation. Any of those things would be just like
0: eye bulging emoji, right? Yeah. I mean, this, this is one of the things that really comes through is, is – you know, I, I do this for a living. I report on this. I pay a lot of attention to what Donald Trump says and and does and did over the past six or seven years. And the number of things that I read in the book that are things either I'd forgotten or I maybe heard about but didn't pay a ton of attention to. It's just it's relentless. It's like it's like you know water torture. Um, let me let me just end with this question. You know the. The taking sort of listeners behind behind the scenes a little bit. Every big um, media outlet has pre-written or pre-recorded obituaries for famous people, famous politicians, um, famous actors and actresses, and then when the person dies, you just sort of pop on the cause of death and a couple of interesting tidbits to freshen it up at the top, and then you you run the thing. It's why you can put up a 2,000-word obit of a major political figure in 20 minutes after the person has been confirmed dead. I have to say that as I read the book, it felt to me like a pre written obituary for the United States. Did it feel like that, reporting it for you? I mean, you use language about the, the continued viability of our system and of our country. Did it feel like that when you reported it?
2: That's pretty sobering, Steve. I hadn't thought about that. Well, I don't think Alex had either. Uh, but obviously, we were uh, crafting this book as we were living this history. And I think we both share a sort of pessimism about the short term uh, viability of the system. I and mean, we sort of see uh, what's happening and we see who is being elected and we see the sort of a deeper and deeper silos that people in this country are moving into in terms of the uh, information flow. And it's it's hard to avoid uh, the reality that, well, this will not pass. Uh, and this this sort of um, uh, this polarization, this tribalism is posing an immense threat to uh, American democracy as we know it. And there's no obvious solution. I mean, that's the thing. There's just there's no obvious way to break the fever. Um, we say this in the book, but, you know, most crises in American history had at least some short term rallying effect. My goodness, the COVID disaster had just the opposite effect. It just deepened the polarization. So how can you be optimistic after you just witnessed uh, a pandemic that killed a million Americans and not only didn't bring folks together, driven further apart?
1: I think I would stop short of saying uh, obituary, but I think that uh, uh, maybe the comparison I would use is um you know, a person who uh, has been diagnosed with a very severe illness or has experienced a very severe accident and they're sort of told by their uh, physician, you know, the good news is uh, that you're going to live, but the bad news is that your uh, life is never going to be the same again, right? Um, That we're going to be living with the consequences of the last few years uh, forever. And the political culture that we've had in this country, I think is never going to be what it was uh, when I was uh, 16, which by the way, was not that great uh, to begin with. Right. Um, And, you know, One of the big, uh, I think, tragedies of the last few years, and I think one of the great sort of political miscalculations and surprises of the Biden administration, uh, was the assumption that once you got rid of Trump, uh, you would have essentially purged the toxin from the system. Uh, Democrats had this great big debate in 2019, is Trump a symptom uh, or is Trump the disease? Uh, And I think it's pretty clear at this point that he is uh, one very, very big symptom, uh, but the underlying issue is not just Donald Trump, and that's not about to change.
0: Well, arguably the most important thing you can have uh, in this kind of a situation is a a real sort of fact-based rendering of what's happening, a, a, a diagnosis based on the truth and based on facts and history. And that's what you have given us with this book. So again, I highly recommend the book. Really terrific, really terrific reporting, um, even if it's sometimes an uncomfortable read uh, that takes us in a direction that causes greater concern.
2: I hope your listeners will uh, will pick it up. I encourage all, all all dispatch listeners and readers to pick up a copy.
0: I think you'll like it. I, I, I think many of them will. Uh, thank you both for taking the hour to talk to us. Really appreciate it, and good luck with the book. Thanks a lot.
2: All right, Hayes. Thanks, pal. See you.